on this episode of The James Quandall Show. You don't need to beat up someone who's stuck in a rural area in a poverty-stricken country growing seriously a luxury product for you. I mean, they're growing coffee. Coffee is a luxury product that they're exporting here that we're going to sip and enjoy and say, wow, this has notes of chocolate and strawberry while we're underpaying those people and slapping a fair trade logo on it. That's just, it's, it's insane. Joseph Stazzoni is the chief coffee hunter at Cafe Creole, which creates sustainable employment in Haiti using specialty-grade organic coffee. Joey believes farmers should get paid based on the quality of their product, and he practices this belief by paying around 300% higher wages than what the fair trade label requires. His story continues as he works to alleviate poverty in rural coffee-growing regions one cup of coffee at a time. Joey, I must tell you, I've been enjoying your zombie desert coffee a lot. I'm on my second bag since we met, and it is delicious. And you can taste something different in the flavor. And I always buy organic, small batch, premium coffees. And for some reason, the taste with this is just different than any other coffee I've had. Why would that be? Yeah, I mean the terroir of the the place that it grows is going to impact the flavor quite a bit, and the zombie desert coffee comes from Haiti. Um, in Haiti, the soil has a lot of clay and limestone, and um, most islands kind of share this trait that when they grow coffee or or other things on the island, the products tend to have lower acid in them as well. So that coffee is going to be very like nutty tasting and it, it picks up a lot of the flavors of the land around it. It could be called zombie dessert because the coffee just tastes delicious. And to me, I never really enjoyed the taste of coffee until recently. And it t- it tastes more like a chocolatey or a nutty dessert than it is a coffee. Yeah. And funny story about the name zombie desert. That's actually the name of the town that that coffee grows in in Haiti. Uh, it's called Savan Zombie, which would translate zombie desert uh, in English. So you also have another coffee, and the name escapes me right now, but it's not a Harry Potter-named coffee, is it? Uh, it, it is named something similar to a, a Harry Potter movie. Yeah, we have an espresso blend called Defense Against the Dark Arts. Why did you name it that? Because that is such a clever and funny name. I wanted to try it, but I don't do espresso very often. So that one actually works really well in a drip as as just a regular coffee as well. Um, we designed it that way to make it easy for for people at home or coffee shops that are looking to put it in their espresso machine. Um, I mean, I was working in Haiti at the time and I had three Haitian coffees and this was my only blend that was not Haitian. There's a lot of voodoo in Haiti and I was recognizing it without necessarily supporting it. So I, I figured Defense Against the Dark Arts was um, something that in Harry Potter that I related to that kind of fit that description. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There was, uh, speaking of, um, you said what you said hoodoo, is that right? Uh, voodoo. Voodoo. Okay, well, that's different because I watched this movie called The Skeleton Key and it took place in New Orleans, I believe, and it was Hoodoo, which was unbelievable, something I don't really want to go into because that movie freaked me out. But speaking of Haiti and your coffee there, most of the coffee I've drank in the past, I think, is from Colombia. How is it different getting coffee from Haiti versus Colombia? The quality of coffee is going to be good or bad no matter where you go. So you're going to have really nice coffee in Colombia, and you're going to have really poor quality in Colombia, and you're going to have the same in a lot of the other countries. And the quality is ranked on a scale that judges a lot of the attributes of the coffee, the flavor, the aftertaste, the acidity, 
the body, uh, the sweetness, and how they all work together in the cup, similar to how you would score wine. So you're going to have low scoring and high scoring from all these places. I think Haitian coffee differs because um, it is lower in acidity, but still has a heavier body and uh, a lot of natural sweetness that kind of just balances the cup out. While typically a lower acid coffee might lack some of that sweetness. Okay. Yeah. And you have a, a interesting backstory to how you started your company. And from what I understand, did it begin with just a trip to Haiti? It did. Yeah, that's, that's right. I started after going down to um, Haiti with my church in 2011. And uh, when I went down, it was right, it was either right at the end of 2011 or the first month of 2012. And that was 2011. Yeah, we went down there. And um, it was a week long church missions trip, uh, where we painted walls for about a week and um, read Bible stories to kids through a translator because we didn't speak Creole. And um, when I left at the end of the trip, I was just kind of looking at the math of what that cost us. It was about $15,000 for 10 people to go down there with the kids. What we did, uh, the translator could have done on his own. Had we uh, just empowered someone there to do that, we could have paid someone a lot less to paint walls and given Haitians jobs. Upon leaving that time, we dumped out our, uh, there were several bags of shoes. When I'm going to Haiti, people always want to give us old shoes to bring down there because everyone in Haiti needs your old shoes, obviously. We were dumping them out and a woman selling shoes came and talked to us and she was crying and she was just like, you guys aren't helping the way you think you are. She's like, I had to get a loan from my bank in Port-au-Prince, all the way in Port-au-Prince to come here and buy shoes that are, uh, some of them were used, some of them were handmade, but she was like, she was selling them for you know less than $10 a pair. They were really affordable. And we just gave everyone a free pair of shoes in her um, in her town. She was like, you're not helping. Uh, it's so after that, I just bought a plane ticket back. I, I, I came home. I bought a plane ticket back about two, three days later and flew right back to Haiti and started finding coffee farmers and said, I'm just going to do something to create jobs instead of instead of take them away, which I felt like a lot of our aid was doing. And I didn't quite realize it before, before going down there. What was the intent of the mission trip? Was it to get exposed to the way they're living there? Or what was the initial intent? I think the intent was to share Christ with people, to help you know connect and make people feel more comfortable, like we're going to serve them kind of thing. I, I don't think that the I don't, I don't know if the leaders knew necessarily what the trip was for. I think they were just kind of planning a trip to Haiti and said, what can we do there? Okay, this lined up. Let's go do this. And we ended up painting walls. I think initially we were actually supposed to make latrines, but we got there and nobody had set anything up. So we ended up painting walls instead. And so you went back after this mission trip and go into more detail of what that looked like exactly, because I wouldn't even know where to begin, even if I had an idea like that. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, well, I wasn't intending to start a business, James. I I went, I came back and um, I was on parole at the time because I had recently gotten out of jail, actually, and so I already had to get permission to go to Haiti the first time, which was quite an ordeal. And when I got back, I, I went back to my parole officer and I was like, "I'm so sorry, I need to go back to Haiti again." So I had she's frustrated with all the paperwork, I'm sure, but they, they still let me go back a second time. So between her giving me permission again, I just literally bought some tickets back. I contacted some people down there that I got connected with while I was there. Um, one of them was a translator that I'm still friends with to this day. 
And he's the one that came around with me initially uh, as we were scouting out coffee farms. A guy who lived there at the time started showing me where the coffee regions were. And we kind of just took it from there, um, finding coffee farms and talking to farmers and saying, you know, how much do you grow? Let's check out your quality. And, and I didn't know anything about coffee at the time, but I knew that I could find someone who did. And so I started finding um, how much was there, what was available, what was it being sold for, and let's try and find a way to get these guys to export. Where was it being sold then at the time when you found a small farmer? Mostly in country or um, to other passing buyers that might come in and out. So were they growing a lot more than they were able to sell or were they kind of just selling creating exactly what they could sell? I think that would go up and down. Um, based on my understanding, I think it would actually be sometimes, um, sometimes it would be more, in which case they would probably scale back the next year or do something like that. And sometimes it would be less and then try to increase, but it was just a balancing going back and forth in a system that didn't seem very sustainable. No buyers were really permanent. Um, selling things in country gets you uh, very little money. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you start to identify some of these small farmers and you start to find folks that have a, a quality ingredient and they have extra capacity, then what? Yeah. At the time, what we started doing is planting tree nurseries and um, we set up nurseries that could replenish people's coffee farms that were failing. Cause there's at the back, you know, eight, nine years ago, there was this disease going around called leaf rust. It's called La Roya. It actually exists with a lot of plants like tomatoes get it too, where it's this like spore that attaches to the leaves. It has them start to turn yellow and then the leaves fall off. And it just starts to slowly kill the plant. Without leaves, a plant can't photosynthesize, um, so it can't feed itself. And so it's obviously going to have less fruit, less nourishment, all that. We were replenishing people's farms with fresh plants with those, as well as helping people grow their farm or even start a new farm. Our goal from the beginning was never to take jobs away from Haiti. So even with the tree nurseries, we we contracted other people to do that. They were Haitians. We'd say, you're going to do this if you'd like. This is a job. Would you like it? Like, And, and they would start growing the coffee. And then the trees would go to farmers at cost um, by giving it to them at cost, which sounds crazy because people are in poverty in Haiti, right? But by giving it to them at cost, it avoids the first big problem that I saw in Haiti, which was that if you go there and you say, I'm going to start like farming rabbits with people and you give someone two rabbits and then you give someone else two rabbits and you say, just all you have to do is breed these. You're going to have a bunch of rabbits. You get the meat, you can sell it. They're going to just kill the rabbits and eat them. No, Nobody's, it, most of the people if they don't buy into wanting to do that, then they don't care. They're not going to do it. You just gave them something and said, you do this job instead of, I have a job, would you like it? There's a big difference. Um, and so by having people buy into their own entrepreneurship venture, their own um, project, if you will, like uh, they, they're able to pay that back with the first harvest. And we only got people that were really interested in growing coffee to make money. And those people have continued to grow their farms and most of them have excelled and um, you know done a, done a great job. So this grew a lot of the places there and a lot of the farms. And then we started to see Haitians make their own nurseries and start selling plants as well, which was initially one of the goals we had was we, we don't want to be the ones coming here and starting farms. I, I'd like people to be just doing things like that. So when they see that other people are making money off it, they say, I could do that too for cheaper. That's That's what I like to see is business being created, opportunity. Is there business being created now that you aren't involved in as a result of the work that you did? That's that's right. Yeah, we've we've actually even seen firsthand people create nurseries that would 
um, even compete with the ones that we made, which is which is fantastic. I love and it. And some of those people that are creating these competitive nurseries are people that you trained and originally helped get going. Uh, yeah, yeah, or directly related to them, part of the same cooperatives. Wow, that's really cool. And how did you identify folks that were a good fit as far as having entrepreneurial spirit and drive and motivation? Or did that just sort of make itself apparent? We we partnered with co-ops that existed. Um, they didn't necessarily function the way a cooperative would with coffee in other countries that I saw. But you know what? Cooperatives function in a lot of different ways everywhere I go. Um, so by partnering with them, we saw, first of all, who was showing up, who was showing up for workshops, who wanted to learn about coffee processing, quality, scoring, tasting. Those people are obviously our first candidates, right? And then as they continue to excel, they know other people who are interested in the same thing. And it's kind of just growing a business from the ground there where people would show up or people would get recommended. It would kind of go from there. But I think initially it was the people who showed up, were excited and were interested. Wow. So like this zombie desert coffee, how many farms are growing that coffee? That specific one, because we work in five different areas in Haiti. Um, the uh, Savannah Zombie Cooperative is growing, I'm going to say around, I believe it's got somewhere around 120 members right now. It's actually one of the uh, smaller and newer cooperatives in Haiti. Uh, side note, this year, even just two weeks ago, that coffee just got a 92-point score from Coffee Review, and it earned the um, it earned the top 30 coffees of the year. Uh, I believe it was number 27. Whoa, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting for for us and for the producers there. I mean, it's I, it's the highest scoring coffee to ever come out of Haiti now. It's been about 10 years of work getting that in place. So I want to talk more about that. But before, can you give a comparison to one of your other coffees that's being sourced from more farms? How many that would be? Uh, some of the cooperatives and groups that we work with could be up to like 900 to 1,000 farmers, producers in one cooperative. Uh, so in total, we've we've calculated somewhere around like 2,800 people um, that we would partner with in Haiti, whether they be producers or um, some of the facilities that we work with that are sorting coffee, washing, drying, you know, stabilizing, bagging, all that. So it's about 2,800 people total. And you have to keep in mind, some of these people are making, you know, $10,000, $15,000 a year, which is um, quite a bit in rural Haiti. And some of them might only be making like $400 because coffee is just like a garden that's in their yard and they're growing um, cherries and selling them to, you know, be processed for us to to, to be exported. Uh, and they might have several other things as well that they're involved in, or they might not. They might need to grow their coffee in order to, um, to grow how much they can profit off their land. 2,500 people. That is astounding that a mission trip to Haiti to bring Christ to the people there. As a result of that, now 2,500 people are directly engaged with your organization. That, to me, is absolutely unbelievable. It's God making success out of something that probably wasn't going to be otherwise, right? For me, I'd be careful because I see people using that as a reason why we should still take the missions trips that I did. And I think that it's nice to go on vision trips. I think vision trips make sense if you want to meet people, if you're like, this is something I might want to be involved in, or I just need to experience this. The fact that God used it for good 
doesn't necessarily mean that the trip itself was the right choice. I mean, God uses a donkey by turning him through a village. It doesn't mean that we go release a bunch of donkeys through villages and tell God to just use them for good. We should, we should really think about what we do. We should have, I mean, people on my team spoke Spanish. Why didn't those people go to Spanish speaking countries, for example, how much more effective would we have been if we didn't just go to a place where we didn't speak the language? How much more effective would we have been if we were training up the pastors and leaders there? How much more effective would we have been if we were just going on a vision trip and it didn't cost as much? Or there's just so many things that go through my head where I could have run that significantly better and and had people come out of it with impact and ideas and things like that as well. I love that distinction of a vision trip. I have not heard that before. And I've sort of had a gripe with the traditional mission trips myself, because, for example, I went to one up in North Carolina a couple of years ago for the summer with the youth, and I was a chaperone from my church. And we were painting curbs and cleaning buildings and emptying storage facilities and yeah. and, and sitting with veterans and and having conversations with them over their meals. Great things to do. But then I came back and right outside my church was similar tasks that needed to get done in the neighborhood of my church. Like we would drive away from those, those opportunities after church and just go back home instead of serving in our own backyard. So I've always sort of had a, an, a problem with that. Now, vision trip, that makes a lot of sense to me to just see how, other people are living differently than you may be and use that as inspiration to serve in some other capacity. How is that how you would define a vision trip versus a mission trip? So a vision trip, yeah, it could be that exactly. Or let's say two pastors are thinking to themselves, how can we get involved a country like Haiti? Let's just use that for an example in a sustainable way. And we want to impact the country for both Christ and to provide you know, care for people who just, they don't have the same opportunity as we do here. It's not fair. They just don't. And we, we have a lot of opportunity here. We have a lot of things that we can give. God has blessed us and our country with a lot. Um, so those pastors could go with several people who either have expressed interest in things like that, whether it's mercy related, like I want to care for people or whether it's missions related, like evangelism, and they could bring people like that along. And just talk to people on the ground. They've already scouted out churches perhaps that say, I want to impact my community or anything like that that's been provided for you. But I think just going somewhere where you know nobody and an organization connects you with someone and kids show up and you just read Bible stories through that translator and then you're painting something. It's just like, what a disconnected way to really serve ourselves, if you ask me. I mean, I I bet that there's Haitians that were encouraged that we were there, but overall, how much more could we have done with our effort and money to encourage and help those people? And really, I mean, not to be rude here, but I think they need more than encouragement. These people are living in a place where they have no opportunity. Like 65% of their country was unemployed in a statistic taken in 2012. And it's far greater than that now. I mean, can you imagine living in a place where 65% of adults just can't find any type of work? I can't imagine it. It's insane. I mean, it's uh, we take for granted here, there's plenty of injustices in our country. And so I don't want to say that everything is perfect because life's not perfect. And there's, that's just that's how it is. But in places like that, they don't have opportunity. And we have basic opportunity here. I mean, I, I came from a position of being um, homeless and addicted to drugs and in prison for two years to coming out and you know owning a successful business. That's That's what we can do if we're on the right path and we're doing what we're supposed to. 
They don't have that. They, they just don't. So they don't need encouragement as much as they need what? What do they need instead? I wouldn't say they don't need encouragement. I'm just saying, I don't, I don't know if that's a good, like, check that box off. Like our trip was successful. We encouraged a few people and made their walls brighter. Um, but I think they really need opportunity. I think that, uh, to be honest, I think that we, we should be buying things from people there that are trying to export, I think is a huge step to employing people. I think we need to stop sending our free goods there like rice. People should stop importing uh, surpluses of peanuts from here when that happens. I mean, the FDA just tried to do it again a couple of years ago and there was a huge uproar. So they ended up uh, kind of backing off with that. But importing a bunch of free surplus things there that are government subsidized end up causing unemployment to go up. Uh, it's just how it works. So you're, if we bring rice or peanuts down there and people are eating, or chi- maybe I heard before something about chickens. You bring chickens yeah. down there and you give chickens and it's it's great. You're feeding people, but what you're doing is the people that are growing chickens there and trying to sell them for a few bucks, they now can't compete with that. And so then they end up now being unemployed. That's right. So, and you see a lot of the time that it's not only even just like free, but like people are importing chicken and they're still buying it, but they might be importing something because it's cheaper as opposed to just buying local goods there. And I see a lot of like orphanages, um, large scale nonprofits there doing that. These places might be feeding like in a week, hundreds of thousands of people uh, with rice and chicken that they bring in, which is nice and everything. But if they were buying those goods in the country, they would be creating an economy where they wouldn't need to feed people. That makes a lot of sense. And how would I here in South Carolina start to support? I know buying your coffee is a great place to start, but how do I buy from people in Haiti to support the small businesses? That's a great question. So um, you're going to need organizations that you trust. And that even comes with like after a disaster, for example, when you give money for the Haitian earthquake that just happened. They need to buy goods. They need to buy medical supplies. They need to buy tools to help that are all local. If you import a bunch of things like that, um, sometimes right after a disaster, like it's okay to do something not sustainable for a minute, but it needs to change quickly. And if you have the option to buy locally, which most people don't ever do when they're working in Haiti, is um, they need to take advantage of that and be doing that more. So I'd say like you, you got to research the organizations that you are partnering with and buying from there. And um, I guess just hopefully someone gets inspired and starts bringing in more products from there. I think it's important to do so. Do you Have you made any friends what, from your work there that are have a similar company and story to what you're doing with coffee, but with some other type of product, maybe jewelry or clothing or art or something like that? Yeah, I am uh, close with actually a competitor of mine, but really good friend and they're doing a great job is Singing Rooster. Um, uh, we both have really different strengths on the ground there. Singing Rooster is out of Wisconsin and they're they're nonprofit. So we have different models. Ours is a for-profit company. We have a little bit different views on things like that, but their their logistics in Haiti are really strong. Um, and they also, not only do they work with coffee, but they work with art as well. And they purchase art from people down in Port-au-Prince and bring that out and um, you know employ. There's an art district actually there where people are doing metal work and painting and things like that. Um, just a lot of the Caribbean feel. And, uh, and they sell that online as well. Um, I've seen Haitian mangoes a few times come out that are at Whole Foods and things like that, too. I always try to support and buy them when I see them. That's, uh, have, have you found any interesting art or pieces of, of Haiti that you brought back home with you to remind you of, of the work you're doing there? Yeah, of course. We got it. I have a few up in my house now that, that I really 
that I found there and loved and brought home with me. Yeah. Both metal work and painting. So going back to the vision um, trip, it, how would you recommend I actually take one when that would be effective myself? Like what would be the first step to, to, I don't speak any other languages, so that's not really a criteria, but what would you suggest I do? So let's say you're by yourself. You're not with a church. You're not with an organization. I would contact some people on the ground and like organizations are nice and everything. If you wanted to go spend a lot of money to go with one of their programs, cause they're going to create programs for you. But that's, I feel like that's falling right into the same line as what we were doing where these programs become very inefficient. You could go do that if you wanted. Um, or maybe you can find some missionaries or some people that are just doing what you wanted to do on the ground. Like let's say you're a nurse and you wanted to do some medical care there. You could probably find a group of people doing medical care in Haiti. You can ask them, can I come see you there? Um, how would I get you know, lodging while I'm there? Cool. And then you could just take that trip. Let's say you wanted to work with some churches there. Well, let's say you found some missionaries in this area and you'd like to just contact them and say, hey, do you think I can just come down and kind of learn from what you guys are doing for you know, a few weeks here? I, I, I would just love to see it. And um, your goal is to soak things up at that point. Your goal is not going there to, I mean, you can share Christ wherever you go, but I mean, you don't live there you don't speak the language. So it just seems very unrealistic that you're, you think that your main strength would be to go there and win someone over to the Lord right away. Uh, I think your main, your main strength might be uh, significantly less than what you think there, right? So maybe you want to go and observe and watch people who are already doing that, who live there. Maybe you want to go visit with some of the churches, see like, are they healthy? Is there any needs here that I can help with both spiritually or physically? Maybe you just want to visit some churches and say, and that's, so honestly, when I started going back, that's what I started doing is just visiting churches like that and finding out like, what are these people, what do they need? How can I help? And instead of going with programs that were geared towards me, like let's build a latrine that wasn't needed or wasn't set up. And then let's just paint the wall because these people are here and they have to do something it became more like a church saying like, yeah, our church doesn't really evangelize in our area. Okay. Well, that's interesting because we've got people coming from the U S to evangelize here, but there's a church here that isn't doing it. Well, why not? And it became an education thing where the people just, they didn't have a lot of details on what their responsibility was um, in the congregation. And so we went into studying some of that together um, with just some key people at the church and I would meet with them and study with them. Hopefully they would organically pass that on to the people in their congregation as well. Uh, if I saw medical care that needs to be done in a certain area, I'd say like, are you buying goods locally? How can I help you? Can I get you pharmaceuticals from this other place? I know someone there now. Can I have them bring it to you? Things like that. So those things can, can happen. I think better if you take time to just visualize and just say, I'm going to go learn for a bit and then come back and make decisions on what you want to do from there, if anything at all, really. So it makes a lot more sense to go with an open mind and let the Lord tell you while you're there how to best serve instead of going there with some intention of this is exactly how I'm going to help out, but actually go and yeah. look for a door to be opened to help by maybe being a little bit uncomfortable. Because when you were describing the systematic programs opportunity for work, which I've looked into before myself with organizations like World Vision, like going and visiting where they're building wells and things like that. It's going to probably be air conditioned and comfortable and I'm going to get food that I'm used to. And it's just going to be sort of like a vacation, just not here. And I'll see a little bit of what's going on, but I'm not going to really see how I can help. 
and what really needs to be done. That's right. I, I think I agree, James. So talk to me about fair trade, transparent trade. When we are shopping and we're finding places to buy and support in these countries, how do we distinguish what all of that means? Because it's kind of confusing. It is confusing. Um, I'm in the industry and it's confusing sometimes. So I think it's important that people start learning the definitions of those things. What is fair trade? Because the name itself implies, what does it imply to you, James? Like when you hear the words fair trade, like what do you, what do you think? Well, I think that everybody's winning and everyone's being treated fairly, that no one's really being taken advantage of in the situation. So, uh, and we would, I would probably assume like fair pay, right? Would be part of that. Exactly. Definitely. It's like, it's assumed in the title that fair pay is included, but for the last like seven, eight years, the fair trade minimum uh, for coffee has been uh, extraordinarily low uh, around a dollar 75, even dollar, maybe dollar 80 or something or like that for organic. It was, it's, it's been low because it's based on the commodity market. There's a C market value. That's kind of like a stock market, but it's for commodities. There's commodity market values for metals and cocoa and chocolate. And it's been really low. It's been around a dollar a pound for the commodity market for a long time now. And it's finally gone up to about uh, $2 just this last year. And that's because of a big frost that happened in Brazil and supply shortages and such. But $2 still isn't very much. And um, is that per pound? It's per pound. And the producers also have to be part of a cooperative in order to be considered fair trade. There's some huge downfalls to that. If a producer owns their own farm and wants to export, uh, it can't be considered fair trade. In addition, um, to be honest, a lot of small farm holders that are part of cooperatives, I don't know that I've met very many of them that can be making $1.70 a pound um, and be profiting off of their work that entire year. So, so a lot of times what I would see is people either losing money or breaking even. I think that's really hard to call that fair. And for an uneducated consumer here who just sees a title, because I mean, we don't have time to research every little thing that we read on a package, right? But when you see fair trade, you're assuming that people are certainly not using this as marketing to sell me a product that's putting people further into poverty so that they can make money. I'd say a lot of the time that's actually happening. And I'm not saying everyone is doing that in the fair trade world at all. There's probably well more than half of the people are trying to do good and paying far above that fair trade minimum. They might be paying 275 and calling it fair trade. But here's my problem is if the minimum is $1.70, how are we, and people are losing money when they're selling it at that. I don't really care if you're paying 270. I want to know why that fair trade label even exists because it doesn't mean anything anymore. It would be like, can you imagine if I went around, James and I was like, at Cafe Creole, we pay our employees really well. We pay them so well, James. Check this out. I promise you, we pay our employees really good. It's very fair. We pay everyone good. Trust me, we pay so good at my company. And eventually- I would say, well, I how mean, much I do you pay? <laughs> yeah, it's fair, right? You want to ask me that question. Um, and then I was like, well, we pay minimum wage here. And you'd be like, okay, well, I mean, sure, but it's really kind of strange that you're marketing that as being something very special, right? That's a that you would never market it that way. And that's now from what you described it, that's more like that dollar eighty is a minimum wage. I mean, there are people making less than that, I'm sure. That isn't enough. Who's setting that price? Where does that price come from? What, who is saying it's fair? So it comes from the commodity market and these companies that are fair trade. There's several fair trade companies. They have a standard that is 
the commodity market plus 30 cents or something like that, if it's below a certain amount. And then if it's above that amount, then that amount is held. So it's been fluctuating between that, like, uh, you know, dollar seventy to two dollar mark for ten years now. Okay, so p- potentially that means the fair trade marker is not enough if you're really trying to support the folks in these countries. So, what is beyond fair trade? Like, what's the next level that you could look for? And so, and just just to kind of wrap that up, though, there's the benefits of that fair trade could possibly be if it was a commodity, commodity coffee not a special coffee at all or anything like that. So a lot of really large farmers, for example, in Brazil or Colombia that might have, um, or Vietnam that have just a lot of coffee and they have maybe mechanical ways of picking it or things are very efficient and they've deforested their land quite a bit. So they're not climbing up and down crazy mountains and going in and out of bushes and trees. So those people might be able to make more money off of something like that while the, everyone else can't. So maybe for a commodity, like, you know, the bottom or the lower grade of coffee, that could make sense. Now, what we're seeing now is a lot of people pushing towards this direct trade movement, which is crazy because it doesn't really, if you ask a lot of different roasters or importers, what do you mean by direct trade? They're all going to say something different. And that's the scary thing is that we just have people that are now using whatever they want to advertise coffee. The point behind direct trade is really that people are paid based on quality though. That's the most important is, or it's one of the most important is that the payment is based on the quality of the coffee, the rarity, the specific type, whether it's the variety of Arabica or the origin it's coming from, such as a a Panamanian geisha is going to be worth more because you don't see that coffee all the time and it's harder to grow and there's a lower yield for the plant than a Colombian um, Cadimore varietal of Arabica that might be producing 10 pounds a year per plant. So you've got these push towards recognizing varieties, um, yields, the origin it's coming from, all these things and, and the cupping score to come up with an actual price. Um, what that does is it allows the producer to negotiate based on a scale that's closer to the actual value of the coffee instead of a commodity. Coffee is more like wine when you're looking at it that way, where it's going to taste different depending on where it's coming from. And the attributes are important. If people are enjoying those, if roasters are selling bags of coffee here for $15, $20 a bag, I think it makes sense that the farmer is not being paid uh, $2 for that. I have felt, comparing to the other coffees that I bought, organic and fair trade, which now I know I have to look into that a little bit more, that your coffee's very affordable for what you're getting. Because at the end of the day, you don't need an 80% margin to run a business. You you don't need to beat up someone who's stuck in a rural area in a poverty-stricken country growing seriously a luxury product for you. I mean, they're growing coffee. Coffee is a luxury product that they're exporting here that we're going to sip and enjoy and say, wow, this has notes of chocolate and strawberry while we're underpaying those people and slapping a fair trade logo on it. That's just, uh, it's, it's insane. And it's, you can make a successful business that profits while not taking advantage of other people at the same time. That's, that's definitely true. And the actual quality, can you talk on 
quality of coffee, not from the, the taste side, but from mold and um, mycotoxins and, and contaminants and other things like that. What, how do you determine if a, quali- if a, if a coffee is actually quality in that way? James, would it be okay with you if I just touched on fair on the uh, transparent trade? Yeah, let's let, let's do that. Like, Absolutely, take your time. I think it's really important. What you have to th- think about is that with direct trade, when you start to see it everywhere, or you look at people's packages now that there is a movement away from fair trade, you'll start seeing fairly traded, ethically sourced, direct trade, direct from source. There's just it's all they're all trying to say the same thing to you, but the problem is if you ask any of those people. Like, what do you mean by ethically sourced? They'll be like, oh, well, our farmers are really paid fairly and treated well. And then, so my next question to that, because again, if I'm sitting here telling you that I pay very fairly to everyone, you already said that you would ask me, cool, how much do you pay? And I think that's a really fair question. So for me, whenever I see someone advertising to me on their product that they pay very fairly, I think it's a really fair question to ask them, how much do you pay? Because you are advertising it. You are marketing to me that you're you're paying so much. I'd love to know what do you think is so much? And the answer I get a lot of the time is that they honestly just don't know. <laughs> they're buying they're buying from importers that that aren't giving them that information. And and honestly, there's nothing wrong with buying from importers. I think that's a great idea. I think that there's a lot of intermediaries that are necessary in the supply chain of coffee, but we can't market that we are paying people well if we don't know how much we're paying them. That's that's manipulative and it's dishonest. Uh, so at that point, I, I would think the answer to all of this is really transparency. I mean, those people need to find out how much their farmers are getting paid if they are going to market that, or they should probably take it off their packaging. They should decide one or the other though. And I think that it's appropriate to ask people in a nice way, like, Hey, I saw ethically sourced on here. What, what do your, what do your producers make? Do you mind sharing with us? Cause it says that, or what do you mean by ethically sourced? If they say that they're not sure. You can encourage them in a positive way instead of condemning them immediately and saying, well, you should really take this off. Be like, well, it kind of implies that you do know that and you are saying that. Is that something that you have the goal of or how can you get there in the next year or so? And then that way, from the bottom up in the supply chain, we're really pushing the supply chain. If we start demanding that and saying, I'm only going to buy from you if you can start providing this information to me, um, that will go right up the supply chain and it will directly impact producers. Um and that's something that the power that the consumers here do have is demanding that type of transparency when people are claiming things like so that. So would it be something that'd be on their FAQs on their website or is there a central database that tells you what's good? I mean, what? how do we know if it's actually a good number? I know you have the commodity price and then it seems like there's a small percentage bump above that and then you're fair trade. But if that's not enough for the person to actually be doing well, how do you know what is enough? There's a solution to that that some academics at Emory University came up with. It's like the answer to the C market's problems, and it's called the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide. And what they did is they took data, tons and tons of contracts from different countries, and they started to create averages, median values, um, and they would remove outliers to say, here's what most people are getting paid in Colombia, for example, for an 85-point scoring coffee. Here's what people are getting paid for an 84 and below. And it starts giving you this data that says like, hey, here's what the actual prices should be because this is what the market in that place is paying. 
So then you start seeing like, wow, the market was never really a dollar eighty for that. People are paying more like two fifty in this one country, like Bolivia, for example, because there's just a strong internal market value for coffee while production is lower. So the internal market is actually higher than the fair trade anyway. So um, you start to see these numbers and say, well, well, this is a way to compare the transparency that I receive and no coffee provider fall in that or close to it or below it or above it or where. Okay. And that's at transparenttradecoffee.org. You can start to get that information. Uh, as well as the specialty coffee transaction guide, if you want to look it up. It's transparent coffee. Uh, transparent trade coffee. Okay. I will put a link to that website, to your website, and to the other resources that we discuss on this episode in the show notes over at quandal.com slash coffee hunter. That's quandal.com slash coffee hunter. And I'll definitely link to the coffees I've tried of yours. Really close the loop on, on the transparency because I can, I, I can tell it's extremely important. I'm naive on it. If I was to email a coffee company that I buy from and ask them, what are the odds that they would actually know? I think a, a lot of the ones that I buy from, they're not actually in touch with the growers at all. They're just buying the beans wholesale and then roasting them their special way and then bagging it. They might not. I think a lot of people, I, so that's the thing is that most people are in a position where they can buy an entire container load, which is about 42,000 pounds of coffee at a time, shipping it from origin on ocean freight. And that's why importers and exporters are important um, because they can take care of a lot of those things. But it, when those people are there, I think the transparency is still key. So if I, if I was a consumer knowing what I know, and I contacted a local roaster near me and they they say ethically sourced in their packaging. My first question would be, what do you mean by that? And then my follow-up questions would probably be a little bit more in detail. Like if they did say, for example, our farmers are paid fairly, I'd say, how much are they getting paid? Do you know that information? And I would be very clear that, I, hey, I'm not trying to attack. I just want you to know that I, I am asking this because I want to buy your coffee. And I see that this industry is really broken with how much producers make. And it seems like people are able to market that they're paying fairly sometimes and, and the farmers aren't. So I'm wondering, do you have that data? Where do you get that data from? If you don't have it, what are your goals to get it soon? Because I would like to support your product. I want to promote it, but I need to know that when you say these words ethically sourced, uh, they align with my values. That's excellent. Or any, any values at all, really. Because <laughs> if they don't mean anything, then there's no values they align. That's with. great, Joe, because some of the folks I buy from, I just like to have different coffees I, rather than stick to one because I have found that you kind of get used to the flavor and you don't necessarily taste the distinctions when you drink the same cup every single day. I want to ask these questions to the folks I'm buying from because I believe I'm getting a great quality product, but I don't know that. I know that they're fair trade, but now I know that I don't know what that really means. <laughs> but what about the uh, switching gears to actually identifying what's a good quality coffee health-wise without contaminants and mold and, 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 and things like that? Do you know how you can determine what's actually good for you in that way versus just the taste? The taste is completely separated from health. Uh, for the record here, like organic doesn't mean it's going to be better tasting. Um, organic means that there's going to be non-natural chemicals used at the farm level or during the processing 
roasting storage of the product. So that product is not going to have um, pesticides or f chemical fertilizers added that are um, not natural. And there has to be a certification process. So I, I do think that that matters. I think that the organic uh, chemicals, when they are absorbed into plants, they go directly into the fatty acids. And that's what the seeds are. And coffee beans are actually the seed of the fruit. So it would make sense that anything that you add would be concentrating itself there. Now, coffee is roasted in a, you know, three, four, 500 degree roaster. Um, it's certainly eliminating quite a bit of what was inside, but that doesn't mean that chemicals aren't, aren't staying in there if they are in the coffee, if it's being sprayed. Um, there is no genetically modified coffee. So, you know, you don't need to worry about if GMOs exist for it right now. Um, but I think the big concern of GMOs is really that uh, force the people to use Roundup and other chemicals anyway. I don't know if anyone's worried that we've necessarily modified a tomato to be um, the right size. I think for me, the, the concern is that those GMO companies then uh, force the farmers to use pesticides. So they are doused with chemicals afterwards. If you're looking for healthy, you're going to want to look for certified organic, or you need to know your provider well enough to know if they're actually buying organic product. And I, I hate to say it, but the most of the people I work with, I hear all the time. Well, I know that most coffee is organically grown, so it's okay if it's not certified. And that's pretty true, to be honest. Like I'd say like 60%, maybe 80% of the time I'm buying coffee from small farmers. And sometimes they just, these guys, these guys wouldn't be able to find pesticides and fertilizers anyway. But I don't know that that gives us a license for the other 20 to 40% of the time to just say, well, it's probable that um, there's no chemicals in my food. You know what I mean? It's like, it's such an easy way to just be lazy at that point or to, as an importer for me selling to roasters, it's such an easy way to just lie to people if that's what you wanted to do. And I think a lot of importers, unfortunately, do use that line to just sell their products. Um, and then roasters turn around and communicate that to their buyers as well. So you have to really be able to trust that the people are asking tough questions if you're going to trust their word. Otherwise, you might want to look for the organic seal to make sure that there's no chemicals in that product. As far as mycotoxins exist in a lot of foods that we eat, it's to my understanding that they're formed on the bottom of coffee when it's drying on patios for long periods of time and there might be mold on it. Specialty coffee should never have a moldy defect on it anyway. It's turned over frequently. It's dried evenly. A lot of times it's on raised drying beds that allow oxygen to go underneath and above it. I, I think that's more of a concern perhaps for commodity coffee, uh, commercial stuff that's ground cheap at your grocery store, uh, not, not specialty grade uh, coffee. Okay. So is there levels then that we have to distinguish between just like with the fair trade and transparent trade and direct trade with this organic coffee where not all organic coffee is equally as good? I think that it is possible to have organic coffee that is not up to the same standards as other ones. That's, that is correct. Um, there, are, there are higher standards of some organic than others. Uh, the, the big problem with that is with the USDA label, I mean, you're going to have the label exists when the label exists. So, and, and it's also, it could skip over people sometimes too, where it could cause problems for you when really it, it doesn't need to. And it's all about like 
documents, there's a huge negative side to organic on the other end. Too. Yeah, I actually work at the local farmer's market and I sell a friend's beef. I know because I've been to most of the farms for the people that are selling there, lots of them are organic or even and do not put organic on their labeling because it's just a one or two person operation and the tracking and the paperwork and the requirements to actually be certified and the costs are more than they're actually making selling, you know, their blueberries and tomatoes. So they don't actually put it on their label where the folks at the market who are certified organic, there's a big cost that's then being sent to the to me, the buyer. So when I'm buying tomatoes from the two people, they may be grown exactly the same, but this person's has to be a lot more expensive because they had to pay for the certification process. That's true. And that's where it comes in where you really have to trust the people that you're buying from at that point and ask questions. And if they're buying them from someone else, you have to trust that they're not just accepting, hey, this is expensive and we're a team of two people, but that they're asking tough questions too. Like how much do you guys produce? Do you have any fertilizers? Is there people who have visited that can see that for you? Because those are the things that will give you the information that you really need where it's not just words. And it's hard to take the time to actually go out and visit the farms like I've done. I can't suggest all of my friends go and do that because they may not want to. They may not know what they're looking for. They may not know what questions to ask. And so they at that point, they're trusting me. They say, oh, who do you buy from? Well, I buy from this person and here's why. So they are going on my word at that point. But it's it's tough. It's tough to scale that, I guess. Yeah, it can be especially. And so to wrap things up, you're really selling coffee, but you're creating so much more than coffee with what you're doing. You're creating 2,500 employment opportunities and you're on the ground actually finding out what people need and what people want and and not just words of encouragement, which are great, but actually how to truly help. And it all started just from a trip and you going back and and especially in a difficult time in your life. And so I guess, how can myself, how do I be more like you? I mean, what I just want to be more like you. What you're doing is amazing. Yeah, thanks, James. I appreciate that. We, I don't know. Like I said, I didn't intend to start a business when I went down there. I just was trying to do what I saw that I could do and that was right. I think just following God's direction with where can we be useful right now today? Like you said, there's people right out front that need something. Do we walk by them and then say, I want to do something great? Because there's something great we can do right there. And I think that if we're following our life like that and we're going everywhere that we're supposed to, God's going to trust us with more and more, use us in more ways because he can't use us if we're not, or he can use you if you're not willing, but he, he likely won't. And if he does, you're not going to love it. <laughs> I've found in in my life when I'm paying attention and I have my eyes up and I'm looking for opportunities to say yes to, to God, I see more and more and more of them. And when I put my head down and I'm kind of focused on myself, I don't see any opportunities to serve. I, I'm just really impressed that you continue to say yes. And I know that there's a lot of challenges that you face and maybe we can get into those next time we talk because I know it hasn't been all easy and I'm sure it's it's a difficult role that you're filling. But to wrap up, where can we learn more about your products, what you're doing, and what can we do to support the work that you're doing? Our website, Cafe Creole, 
And that's spelled K-R-E-Y-O-L, which is the Haitian way of spelling Creole, cafecreole.com. The best way to learn more about us. And we've got Meet the Farmer pages where you can actually um, engage and click on who's growing your coffee. And we have information about them there that those people have helped us write about themselves. And I've been part of, um, you know, authoring their own pages in the Meet the Farmer. You can see our products. You can see which ones have scored very high if you're interested in that. Uh, select from different coffees that might be supporting different different people in different areas of the world. That's awesome. I didn't actually see the Meet the Farmer page, so I'm going to check that out. And for folks listening, would there be a coffee of yours that you'd suggest they try first as a as sort of a an easy to begin with coffee? So I actually think, um, and we have like a dozen country coffees. I know I've been talking about Haiti a lot because that's, that's our flagship coffee. Um, that was our first coffee that we made. It's still the most important to me is to create as many sustainable jobs there as possible. But honestly, that one being so smooth and low in acid is uh, best starter coffee for people who are looking to get into specialty coffee. While some of the other brighter or fruitier ones we do are more for an advanced palate, people who are really interested in getting something a little bit more complex. Uh, and that Haitian coffee comes in light, medium, or dark on our website. So you can pick out Caribbean blue, zombie desert, or Haitian hound, which are the three different types of roasts we do with that, depending on what what kind of flavor you're, you're normally interested in. I'm going to check out the Haitian hound because I like to have a dark roast once in a while. And your medium roast is just uh, extremely tasty. I mean, I cannot brag on it enough how smooth is a great way to describe it i don't have any coffee vernacular but it really is smooth it tastes like a hot chocolate it just tastes really nice and um i remember the first time i had coffee it was so bitter and i spit it out and i never wanted to have coffee again but this isn't like that it's just a nice uh easy to drink enjoyable product that's that's right it is it's really really nutty very smooth um but i think that was my first experience with it too which is when i knew you know, we had something special there. Well, thank you so much, Joey, for what you're doing. I will link to your website and to the Transparent Trade Coffee website and to Singing Rooster and everything else that we talked about in the show notes for this episode, which will be under your nickname, which is quandal.com slash coffee hunter. And uh, we'll go from there. Thanks so much, Joey. Thanks, James. I appreciate you having me today. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.